When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you have these prejudices that you believe rationally to be unfounded, but you feel them, they guide you whether you know it or not, and you have to override them. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Today we're talking with author and developmental psychologist Paul Bloom. We'll discuss where good and evil come from. We'll ask why it evolved in us. And you should listen to the show if you wanna know how that affects us today, whether or not we're all just closet racists, and last but not least, what we can do about it. So enjoy this one with Paul Bloom, and enjoy this episode of The Art of Charm. We bring together the best thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life in your relationships and at work. If you're new to the show, we'd love to send you some top episodes in the toolbox where we discuss things like body language and nonverbal communication, persuasion, networking, negotiation, mentorship, and everything else we teach here at AOC. In the US, just text CHARMED, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444. Everywhere else, go to theartofcharm.com. We may not have all the answers, but we definitely have all the right questions. All right, here's Paul Bloom. Paul, one of the reasons that I wanted to have you come on the show is because I was very surprised by the concept that morality and conscience and things like that may or may not be hardwired. And there's so many mysteries of where bad behavior comes from. We seldom look at good behavior as well. And as the cover of your book implies, some of us are born good and some of us are born evil, but obviously it's not that simple, right? It isn't. I mean, sometimes the question comes up, are we naturally good or naturally evil? And to me, the answer to that question is yes, in that there's just a lot of evidence for a natural goodness and natural kindness. But then there's also a lot of evidence that our very worst traits, our very most ugly and malicious tendencies are also there from the start. So there's a fundamental duality to human nature, which shows up, I think, as young as you look. What does that really mean? When do we start seeing these behaviors and how did you test for these things? It's a good question because if you've ever seen a baby, babies don't do much. They coo, they roll around, they poop, they feed. And the idea of a small baby manifesting any moral knowledge, you know, seems ridiculous to many people. But what you need is some fairly clever methods, some clever and indirect methods to discover what babies know. And so, for instance, we use looking time. A lot of developmental psychologists have discovered that if you, you study where babies look and how long they look, you get some grasp of their expectations and what they expect. Um, we study what they reach for. So an eight-month-old, a 10-month-old can reach for some things, and then you could find out about his preferences. When you get to about a one-year-old, you could look at who they reward and who they punish. I'm presenting all this in sort of an abstract general way, but here's a specific example. This is a specific study that got us going, where 
what we do is we show babies a one-act play. And in this one-act play, there's a character struggling to make it up a hill. And another character gently helps it up the hill, but then a third character shoves it down the hill. Now, if you were to see this, you would say, the guy who helped is a nice guy, is a mensch. The guy who pushed down is a jerk. It turns out that babies seem to have the same intuitions. So they prefer to reach for the good guy. They avoid the bad guy. And when given the opportunity to punish somebody, they'll punish the bad guy. And this suggests that some of our basic moral understanding, and this is a simple study, but some basic moral understanding is there for as young as we can test it. And so do you think that this is cultural or is this something that we are probably born with? I think there's a lot of evidence as what we're born with. I think that this is moral capacities bequeathed to us by evolution, that as biological creatures evolve to get along with others and live in small social groups, we've evolved some moral capacity, some moral capacity to detect when people are being kind, when they're being cruel. We've evolved some moral propensities to help others, to suffer when they're in pain. And that's the sort of good news. That's the good news of what evolution has given us. Right, yeah, it seems like that's a good thing. That's the good thing. Then there's the bad news. The bad news, I think, is that this moral capacity we have is tragically limited. It's limited just in the ways you'd expect it to be from an evolutionary point of view. So babies don't care at all about those who aren't part of their in-group, who are strangers. They have strong biases to favor those who look like them, who have interacted with them. Moral notions that you and I have, such as notions of equal rights or the idea that somebody in a faraway land is just as much of a right to live as somebody close to you, isn't something we're born with. That is a cultural accomplishment. So babies are racist chauvinists, basically. <laughs> babies are racist pricks. That's terrible. We should ban babies. That's the only answer to that question. Babies are terrible. You know, babies are wonderful and babies are terrible. But some people get really excited about the infant results. And I should say that the work I'm talking about is all done with my wife and my colleague, Karen Wynn. So she has a lab and they pump out these amazing baby findings. And people swoon and say babies are these wonderful angels. But about half of the findings we find show that babies are often malevolent. They're extremely group-oriented. They favor those who look like them. They favor those who like the same sorts of food as them. Karen and her students did a study once where you get a baby to choose between two foods, between like Cheerios and Graham crackers. Then they watch as another puppet makes a choice. If the other puppet makes the same choice, babies like the puppet. If the puppet makes a different choice, they avoid the puppet. And later on, when the puppet gets beaten upon by another puppet, they like the puppet who beat upon the puppet. <laughs> They dislike the idea of somebody being of a different group so much that they're happy if somebody assaults them. That's crazy. We're going to have to build a baby wall and make them pay for it. <laughs> the wall just got a little bit higher. But well, I guess it wouldn't have to be that high for babies. No, no. <laughs> One foot should do it. <laughs> yeah, really. Why would we evolve something like that? I mean, it makes sense if you think about it maybe in its own context, but certainly doesn't make sense in the case of modern civilization, of course, which is perhaps too young to have affected us evolutionarily. I think you put the problem exactly right, which is that from an evolutionary perspective, any animal who was indifferent to his kin versus other people, any animal who didn't care about the difference between friends and strangers wouldn't last very long. Their genes would lose out relative to animals that favored their own. And even right now, we favor our own. I love my sons infinitely more than I care about you. 
I care about my neighbors more than I care about people in faraway lands, and that's okay. But we've also come to a moral insight in the last hundred, last thousand years that basically in reality, people are equal and people deserve equal rights. And we've come to insights about the wrongness of sexism, of racism, and so on. And from an evolutionary point of view, these are novelties. These are new discoveries. They're like scientific discoveries that transcend our everyday experience. And I think humans are sort of ill-fitted to understand them. And so to the extent this work has practical implications, I'm not even sure it does really, but to the extent it has any practical implications, the idea would be that some people think that babies are natural innocents. And to the extent they grow up to be racist or violent or parochial, that's just because of bad teaching and bad people and bad interactions. And I think that's all nonsense. I think babies start off bigoted, biased, narrowly focused, and the project of a society like ours is to expand our moral horizons, like Peter Singer would put it, expand our moral circle. So the whole point is we're born with this hardwired set of negative characteristics that helped us survive, but they're the same characteristics that make us ill-suited to thrive in a modern, diverse society where people from other tribes aren't necessarily trying to kill us. Exactly. It makes perfect sense to favor your own tribe over another if you're a hunter-gatherer. Anybody who didn't wouldn't last very long. But now we look at a world full of billions of people, and A, we're better off if we appreciate that other people in other lands have the same rights as us, but also B, it's just more moral. We're smart enough to recognize that treating other people poorly isn't right. We're smart enough to recognize that just because you might have different color skin than me, it's wrong for me to hurt you. You know, I should stress the good news, which is babies do have a moral sense. And it's in light of this good news that you could appreciate the bad news, which is the moral sense exists, but is limited. And the goal of a modern culture is to sort of make it a bit less limited. My fiance is Asian, right? And I'm, I'm a regular white dude. So is there a part of my brain that's like ostracize Jenny or don't affiliate with Jenny? She's a different tribe. I mean, is that part of my brain still there or is that something that you outgrow even though we're born with it hardwired? It seems like it's probably still there just being overridden by everything else going on in my life and my brain. So it's a complicated story. Here's how I would put it. There's part of your brain that never goes away that breaks the world up into us versus them. And that's never gonna go away. When we discuss politics, when we discuss immigration, when we discuss anything, that's always gonna be there. But what can change is what counts as us and what counts as them. So one of the interesting findings from developmental psychology and anthropology is that race or ethnicity isn't automatically or necessarily the way we cut us versus them. So you and your fiance could actually be in your head us, a hundred percent, no hesitation. And the fact that you have different national origins, that your skin is somewhat different color, won't make a difference at all. What won't go away is your willingness to divide the world. So for instance, there's a lot of very nice research showing that in normal circumstances, people in America break the world up into skin color, basically blacks and whites. But if you put them on a sports team, or they watch a sports team, all of a sudden their us versus them is recalibrated. And skin color means nothing. All that matters is team membership. That's really interesting. So we can recalibrate it really quickly. So the circuitry is there, it just doesn't necessarily use the same software all the time, right? One program might be, I only like people that look like me at some certain sort of reptilian level, right? But then as soon as we get involved with 
any kind of competitive nature event, even companies I would imagine have this, sports teams, things like that, you instantly start running a different program. But what happens to the original program, which is just, I guess, let's call that the racist program. What happens to that one? Where is that? Is that just in hybrid? Is that in sleep mode somewhere in the back of my lizard brain? Where is it? What is it doing? So maybe one way to think about it is the original program is an us versus them program. And probably the original setting is family versus non-family, those you're genetically related to versus those you aren't. Blood is thicker than water. And then it gets filled in with other things. One of these things could be race. In a country like America, races naturally fall into competing coalitions. It's natural to see them that way. It could be ethnicity. It could be political party. It could be, you know, Harvard versus Yale. It could be, you know, the kids down the block versus my group. It could be the Crips versus the Bloods, Democrats versus Republicans. So you get to fill in that slot. One of the cool but kind of sad findings from social psychology is people are outrageously ready to fill in that slot. So there's some classic experiments where you get people in a room and everybody gets to flip a coin. And the people who flip heads are in one team, the people who flip tails are in the other team. This is the most minimal way to break the group up, purely arbitrary, and everybody knows it's arbitrary. Nonetheless, those who get heads start thinking they just turned out to be better and smarter and more moral than those who got tails. And they start showing biases. They start showing preferences. They'd rather hang out with another person who got heads than somebody who got tails. And you get the same effect with young children. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data. And a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all gonna give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. 
Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. All right, back to the show. So this is such a strange development because it's almost like we're looking for any excuse to put ourselves in a different level than people around us. Why? Why is that important? I'm not sure. It makes sense to break the world up from family, non-family. It makes good genetic sense for me to care more about those who share my genes. And actual tribal differences really do matter. I think what we see here is what we often see in evolution, which is a system that's evolved for one purpose and has adaptive value in another purpose, has adaptive value for that purpose it evolved in, then stuck in the modern world shows weird and unadaptive behavior. So I think it makes adaptive sense for an animal to break up the world into tribes, my tribe versus your tribe. And then we're in a modern world, and then we do it with coin tosses, or we do it in cases where it's entirely arbitrary. And so this is why we're incredibly prone to take national boundaries so importantly, whether you were born half a mile to the north of a boundary versus half a mile to the south of the boundary makes all the difference in the world. And, you know, as you put it earlier, you want to put a wall between that boundary. Right. Yeah. How many people try to co-opt this type of research for nefarious purposes? I can just imagine you must get some weird emails from people with weird domains where they're like, tell us more about how races are different. I mean, the more I read this research, the more I was like, wow, somebody with an agenda could really just dive in here and have a field day. I get my share of weird emails and my wife runs a baby lab. A while ago, uh, men with suits came to visit her, and I won't tell you the organization, but they were extremely interested on tests you could do with young babies to find out who will grow up to be a psychopath later on. So there's a lot of interest. And the race stuff, some people will hear about the race stuff and say, oh, well, this shows races really exist. It shows that maybe there's something natural about racism. I think what it really does show is we are naturally predisposed to be racist. There's a liberal view that says that racism is a product of evil societies or capitalism and so on. And that's just nonsense. I think it reflects our evolutionary history. But none of this says that racism is a good thing or that racism is grounded in any real biological differences. Right. If anything, it's kind of like a Cro-Magnon thing that still runs in our brain. It's one of those primal things that maybe we'd be better off not worrying about as much that served its purpose in the Stone Age. I mean, if you're going to go down that road, you might as well look at all of the things we had 100,000 years ago and see if those apply to your life currently. And, and then you can realize that people who are doing that are just cherry picking something they want for their own politics. Exactly. I mean, people might want to go on a paleo diet. I don't know. But you don't want a paleo morality and you don't want paleo science. And so, you know, a lot of the stuff that was fine 
that had evolutionary advantages that our ancestors lived by are just bogus now, and they lead us into nothing but trouble. And there's a million examples. I mean, a lot of the anger we have towards strangers, road rage, Twitter fights, public shaming, is a natural byproduct of systems that evolved when we were in small groups of people and make no sense at all in a world full of strangers. And that's just one example among many. In the research, you mentioned that babies can tell between helpers and hinderers, good guys and bad guys. Does that mean that they start to develop a sense of their own morality? Does that mean that babies know they're being bad if they're misbehaving? You know, you're asking a question which has really puzzled us because it's very hard to find out. So the question is, we know babies have sort of a moral evaluation system. They look at the world and they say, good guy, bad guy. But can they turn this in on themselves? And it's hard to find out because you can't use the same experimental methods. What we do know is that even for one-year-olds, we see babies give expressions of guilt and shame when they do something bad. So they'll blush, they'll be embarrassed. When they get old enough, they'll try to hide it. And this suggests that they can look inwards and judge their own behavior. At the same time, though, for both babies and adults, it's a lot easier to look at someone else's behavior and say that's terrible than to look at your own behavior and say that's terrible. When it comes to ourselves, we always have a reason for it. You know, well, it looks kind of bad, but I had a good reason. I was in a hurry. You know, he deserved it. It was my turn. Right. We rationalize it. Yeah. When it comes to other people, we just say, man, that's pure evil. Yeah, yeah, right. We don't rationalize for other people. We let them do it for themselves. But when we misbehave, yeah, there's always some really good reason that makes perfect sense and keeps us within our identity as a good person, right? That's right. The psychologist Roy Baumeister did a study where he asked people to tell stories. And half of the people he asked to say, tell a story when somebody did something really awful to you. And the other half, he said, tell me a story where you did something really awful to somebody else. And for the first group, the people who were the victims described the perpetrators as pure evil, driven by malice and malevolence and some inchoate evil that seemed to have no purpose. But when they were describing when they were the perpetrators, people always have an excellent excuse. Yeah, I was kind of rude to him. Yeah, I stole it. Yeah, I slapped her. But you got to understand my circumstances. Anybody would have done so in the same situation. So my bet would be if we could test babies, we'd find babies are a lot more forgiving of their own transgressions than of other transgressions. In your work, you discuss the myth of the successful psychopath, especially in corporations. And I had a couple of questions about that because we always hear like, oh, these people at the top are sociopaths, these people are psychopaths. And I even know some people that run companies that are definitely that. I mean, I've known them for a long time, you know, growing up together or something like that. And I'm just like, oh, of course you're doing well in XYZ Corporation. But it seems like if psychopaths were destined to be more successful because of the way that they behave, wouldn't we all have evolved that way over time? That's the logic I would use to argue against a successful psychopath. The evolutionary case for good behavior, for kind behavior, is that for people in, in societies, they're better off. If you're like a cheat and a liar, in the long run, living with people, you're not going to be better off. You'll be better off if you restrain your bad impulses and are nice to people because people have a choice on who to interact with. And so in economic games, but also in everyday life, often nice guys finish first. And in fact, if you look at people who are diagnosed as psychopaths, where do psychopathy researchers do their research? Prisons, uh, sometimes insane asylums. Now, then there's sort of milder forms of psychopathy. So I feel horrible saying this, 
but a psychopath researcher once told me the best place to find psychopaths out of prison is temp agencies. Wow. Real psychopaths find it hard to keep down a job. They're too impulsive. People quickly learn that they're bad people. So what we're left with is the idea that what if somebody is a psychopath, totally self-centered, indifferent to the suffering of others, maybe taking pleasure from the suffering of others, but is perfectly good at hiding it. It's possible some such people exist. And if some such people do exist, you might expect them to be more located in some jobs than others. Yeah, it seems like this would be something where we as non-psychopaths are evolved to spot those types of people quickly as well. Right. And if you think about some of the features of psychopaths, so some of the features of psychopaths are low impulse control. They're quickly bored. They're promiscuous. They love change. They love to screw things up and they don't last. I'm pretty sure every teenager falls into those categories. <laughs> At least I did. I don't know. Maybe I got to get checked out. Yeah, it is kind of the psychopath years. And also particularly every male teenager. Yeah, I was going to say, every guy that I knew growing up is officially a psychopath by that definition. But we get civilized as we get older. For men, you know, your testosterone drops. You have kids, get married, settle down. If you look at violence, violence is a young man's sport. Once you're like past the 20s, you age out of it. The most dangerous people in the world are actually the age of my two teenage sons. But uh, I keep them under control. Yeah, I was just going to say, do you know where they are right now? I have a taser by my bed. So Good, good call. <laughs> Why is it actually even important to realize that prejudice and bias are normal and natural, literally natural? Why is that even an important realization? So I'm interested in because I'm interested in how the mind works. I don't have a practical bone in my body when it comes to this. I just think it's really cool how people's psychologies work, how they develop, and so on. But if you were practically minded, you'd want to know this because we want to make the world a better place. We don't want people to be racist. We don't want to be sexist. We don't want people to assault one another and so on. So how do you do it? Well, your theory of how to do it will depend a lot on your theory of psychology, on how you think other people's minds work. And if you think people are good by nature, naturally unprejudiced and everything, then the way to turn them into good adults is just keep them away from corrupting influences. But if you think, that people are prone to discrimination and bias from the very start, then a natural way to make them good people is to beat it out of them, to make them appreciate the commonalities across people, put them in situations where they work with different people, people of different races, of different communities, for shared goals. And in fact, one of the great findings of social psychology is you get a lot of reduction in racism and sexism in situations that put together people of different races or different sexes on a team which has a common purpose, which is why both sports and the military are actually powerful racism reducers for people to participate in them. Does it matter at which age you do that? I mean, is it like kids that play sports on diverse teams end up being less biased and prejudiced later in life, or is this something that can happen quickly even with adults? I don't know. I would bet without much data, but I would bet that the earlier, the better. As you're an adult, you become more and more invested in your patterns of thought. It's more and more costly to change your views. I think the earlier, the better. In some way, there's an analogy to learning new languages, which is if you want to teach somebody a new language, get them before age 10 if you can. For somebody like me to learn a new language would be virtually impossible. Well, I must have a weird brain. All my languages I've learned after age 18. But it does require a lot of work, so I guess I can't say how much easier it would have been as a kid. That's for sure. How many languages did you know before you were 18? One. Really? Yeah. You do have a weird brain. 
that's very unusual. I grew up speaking only English, didn't do well in French class or Spanish or any of that stuff in school, really was my worst subject. Moved to Germany, went to a public high school, learned pretty fluent German to the point where when I talked for a while, people would say, where are you from? You have a really strange accent. And I would say United States and they would freak out because they just thought I was from another part of Germany, like a weird village that had some sort of weird slang. And then I learned after that Serbian, Spanish and Mandarin Chinese. I know some guys at MIT who'd like to put your head in an fMRI machine. You know, I've done that, but I'm, I'm willing to do it again. Yeah, I did it way back when I was at the University of Michigan. They would do things like show me a bunch of different words in different languages and see which parts of my brain light up, but uh, I never got the results. They were supposed to tell me what their conclusions were, and I never saw it. So I, I'm down. Introduce me. I'll go sit in the microwave. We'll see what happens. Very cool. Well, it all goes to show for every one of my generalizations, you find an interesting exception. The age effects for second language learning are very powerful, and nobody knows what makes these special people special. The reason why I asked is, if you know a lot of languages when you're very young, it makes it easier to learn new ones when you're old. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. For a list of all the amazing sponsors and discount codes, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. Now, back to the show.
Yeah, because you've got the programming in there somewhere. And I see this even in my own language learning, where when I learned German, I remember thinking, this is like English. Oh, this is so different than English. It's hard for me to get a hold of. But then when I plugged in Spanish to that, I would say, this is a lot more like English than this. Oh, and this thing happens that's really weird, but German has that too. So I just immediately grasped that concept, right? Because it was like, okay, this in Spanish, this is where the verb goes or whatever. And I see that in Chinese as well. Some parts of it are more like German and some parts of it are more like English. And the reason I started to learn was because of the symbolic nature of the language, which is just rote memorization for the most part. And so I wanted to challenge myself in that way. But I see there's math involved when they explain a grammatic concept to me. It's not quite, hey, this looks like German, but it's like, okay, this goes into this part of my language brain where there's a blank spot in the English track where we just don't use this, but in German or in Spanish or whatever, we use this type of thing and it's it's this. So it literally, it's like encoding on a another part of the tape that you can't see when you only know one language. Does that make sense? That's incredibly cool. It makes sense. It doesn't fit in with anything I know. At your age, you're supposed to be struggling to learn anything. Vocabulary comes slow, syntax comes slow, and you'll always speak with such an accent that it doesn't sound like you came from the same country. It sounds like you're American. Yeah, I mean, the Chinese stuff, I'm pretty sure they can tell right away. <laughs> but uh, in part, that's just because I learned it over Skype. I learned German in Germany in immersion living with a family, so it came super quickly, really, really quickly, after the first three months where I stopped resisting it. The Chinese is over Skype. I thought that the language learning, better learning language as a kid, I thought that was a myth that had been debunked. I didn't realize that was still considered true. It's true for second languages. There's work from American Sign Language with deaf kids that is true for first languages as well. And puberty seems to be the cutoff point. Henry Kissinger learned English just past puberty, and he's been around here forever. But if you listen to him talk, he's a thick German accent. Yeah, he does. But somebody who learned to speak like two years before that will end up sounding like you or me. Yeah, it's strange. I mean, my grandma came over from Ukraine at age 17 and she had an accent. She claimed to have forgotten Russian and Ukrainian completely, but she still had an accent. You could take somebody who's been in an English-speaking country for like 40 or 50 years, listen to them for 30 seconds and tell them, I know when you started learning English. And if there's an accent, it's past puberty. If there's not, it's likely before puberty. You know, nothing's 100% as you're showing yourself, but it's a pretty good bet. That's super interesting. I wonder if I could ever learn anything like German to the point where people can't tell at all that I'm American, and that would be an interesting challenge. I do remember when I lived in Germany and I heard fluent German with an American accent, I could still spot their accent right away. Clearly they could not, even though they spoke much more fluidly than I did at some point. Even people giving academic talks in universities in Berlin who clearly have a wider range of vocabulary and grammar than I did in German still sounded much more American than I did for some reason. Very cool. Going back to the natural separation of in-groups versus out-groups and things like that, I thought that there's no example that illustrates this better than the one that you had during your TED Talk, which is that groups adjudged Tony Blair as more American than Barack Obama, and they're showing pictures of these two guys, but everybody knew who Tony Blair was, and they, of course, knew who Barack Obama was. It wasn't just like, oh, the audience didn't know the prime minister of the UK. No, they knew that he was British, and they still thought he looked more American, which shows that what most people think looks American is a white dude, right? Or certainly not somebody who's African-American in the, the consciousness of America. That's right. And that goes back to what you were saying earlier, which is has to do with the sort of time course of these things. Even if you know full well that Tony Blair is British and Obama's American, 
in a fraction of a second, your biases will come into play. And I think so much of dealing with modern life is when you have these prejudices that you believe rationally to be unfounded, but you feel them. They guide you, whether you know it or not, and you have to override them. I think to some extent, it's a matter of changing how you live your life, changing policy. So here's a sort of example of an extreme bias. We like attractive people much more than we like ugly people. So if you're looking through files of job applicants, then there's pictures. You will be powerfully influenced by the pictures. Now, if the job is, you know, fashion model, then that makes perfect sense. But if the job is, you know, editorial assistant, it makes no sense at all. And so what you could take away from the psychological research is even the most well-intentioned people when faced with this sort of bias can't override it. So what do you do? Well, take away the photographs. And there's a hundred cases like this where we're smart enough to notice that we're biased and then try to orchestrate the world so that our biases can't apply. Nowadays, when they do auditions for symphony orchestras, people audition behind a screen because it was found that there was a tremendous favoritism for men over women because men just sounded so much better. But this difference went away when you didn't know it was a man and didn't know it was a woman. I wonder how they found that out. Was somebody just like, look, they sound the same. This is unfounded. We need to test this because we're not hiring people that we could have been. Or was this the result of some kind of study and then influenced hiring practice? It seems like there's almost no incentive to try and fix it, especially in that way. It's true because even well-intentioned people, it wasn't just like evil men rubbing their hands together saying, I'm a sexist pig. I like men better. It was also women and people who didn't want to be sexist, but they said, look, we're stuck with it. The men play more powerfully. I do some other research on pleasure, and this is something which happens over and over and over again. You know, if I give you wine and I tell you it's a $100 bottle, it'll taste better than if I tell you it's a $10 bottle. And if I put two wines next to each other and say, this is $100, this is $10, the $100 will taste better, but you'll tell me, look, it has nothing to do with the price. I could just tell it tastes better. The only way to, to convince you is you know, take away the price information, shuffle around the glasses. It's true for bottled waters like Perrier. It's true for artwork. It's true for foods. We are powerfully influenced by our expectations. But we're also smart enough to recognize this. And man is the animal that created blind taste tests, that created situations where we can make our biases go away. Do you think we're more biased or less biased when we're under stress? Because I'm thinking about your comment just now that we're guided in large part by our expectations. And I'm thinking of the whole phenomenon that we're experiencing now with a lot of officers shooting unarmed black men and things like that. Does our ability to override our latent biases, does that get worse as we start having our reptilian brain take over, adrenaline, stress, things like that? Do you have any data on that? I think the answer is yes. I think the answer is that you get more biased when people are speeded up. If you want to even find out that you're biased, the best way to do so is give a speeded task. So, for instance, if you show people pictures of black men and white men holding objects in their hand, and you get to press a button if the object is a gun, if you have all the time in the world, there won't be any difference. You'll carefully consider it and so on. But if you're speeded up, if time is of an essence, you will mistakenly think there are more guns in the hands of the black guys than the white guys. And there's a hundred other demonstrations like that. And in a certain sense, this is immoral. It leads to horrible consequences, but it's not entirely irrational. Suppose there's a case where there's statistics favoring one choice over another. 
if you're hurried, you'll draw upon the statistics and not look at the individuals. If all of a sudden two people are rushing at me and I have no time to analyze the situation and one's a man and one's a woman, I'm going to be more afraid of the man because statistically men are just far more dangerous than women. What's better is if I could take the time, say, okay, that's what the data shows, but I got to see these individuals, but often we don't have the luxury of time. I love a lot of this information. I think it's a little bit relieving to know that some biases are there and that they're always there and that we have to fight against them rather than just thinking, wow, I'm really a bad person because some of this bias shows up when I don't want it to and shame on me, which is I think where a lot of us are thinking. I think the only time we should feel bad or feel ashamed is if we're aware of that bias and we choose to do nothing about it because we don't care enough to do anything about it. I think, would you agree with that? It seems like, you're gonna have biases no matter what. It's whether or not you choose to do something about it to make your perceptions more fair, whether that's wise or, or whether or not that's something that you elect to do is a different question. Obviously, when it comes to survival, I think it's important to listen to your gut, but I think when we're talking about civilization, we have to actually try to normalize this or everybody who's not like us is screwed. And that's a bad thing when we live in diverse society. I do agree with that. There's a lot of debate among psychologists as to the question of whether we're all sort of natural racists and whether you could call these unconscious bias, biases racism. And like a lot of these debates, it's often just a matter of terminology, you know, how you choose to speak, how you use the word. But the moral question I think you have exactly right, which is I think it's not appropriate to blame people for things that are out of their control, that are instinctive and that are reflexive. What we should be held responsible for is how we react. If I notice that I tend to favor male graduate students over female ones or white ones over black ones, this favoring may be out of my control. But once I notice, then I'm morally obligated to take steps to stop it. And if you see as a society that there are profound differences between, say, how blacks are treated and how whites are treated, once you know of this, and you should also view it as an obligation to try to find out whether or not it's true. But once you know it is true, you're morally obliged to act upon it. And so that's certainly enough responsibility. Blaming people for their unconscious seems to be fruitless and often, I think, turns debates over responsibility and racism into something where if everybody's racist all the time, what's the use? I much prefer to think of it in terms of the racist part is when you know about it and do nothing to stop it. Let's wrap up the discussion on empathy. How does it work, first of all? What is it? Let's define it for people that may not know. So empathy has like a 100 definitions. Sometimes people use it to refer to everything good. Like if you high empathy is a good person. Yeah, exactly. Let's iron it out. And in fact, just to sort of skip to things, I'm against empathy. I'm writing a book called Against Empathy. And <laughs> okay. when people hear this, they freak out. They think I'm a psychopath. I'm in favor of everything evil. It's like saying I'm against kittens. But empathy has a narrower usage, which philosophers and psychologists tend to use, which is feeling what another person feels, putting yourself in their shoes. You're in pain. I feel empathy for you. So your pain becomes my pain. And the argument I would make is that this is a very natural human part of us, but it is extremely corrosive when it comes to decision making. It makes us worse people. For a lot of the reasons that we've been discussing right now, actually, it makes us more biased, more parochial. It's much easier for me to feel empathy for somebody white than for somebody black. It's much easier for anybody to feel empathy for somebody who's attractive than somebody who's ugly. 
And certainly we feel more empathy for those who are from within our country than from outside of our country. So if you want to have an unbiased and fair morality, you have to give up on empathy. Well, thanks so much, Paul. Much appreciated. Okay, no, and you've plainly done your homework and it's much appreciated. This is a very good conversation. Thanks for having me. It's interesting to think that good and evil are something that we're born with, essentially, or at least the concepts thereof. And this whole outgroup bias definitely has a place in human survival. It's just that the tension between what we use to survive and what we need to do to thrive in modern society, there's a pretty stark contrast there, and I think we see that showing up in politics, at work, in our relationships, and it's a fascinating discussion. I'm very interested in Paul's work, and you will be too if you read the book. We'll link to that in the show notes, and of course, we'll link to Paul's Twitter as well. I'm also on Twitter, at The Art of Charm. Boot camp and live program details for our live programs that we run in LA every single week. Remember, we're sold out a few months in advance. If you're thinking about it a little bit, get in touch with us, give us a call, or go to theartofcharm.com, and we'll give you some info so you can plan ahead. Also, we've got our social capital challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or if you're here in the States, text CHARMED to 33444, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444. It's all about improving your networking and connection skills, inspiring people to develop connections and relationships with you. We'll also send you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show, as as well as videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward every single week. It'll make you a better networker, a better connector, and of course, a better thinker. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text charmed in the US to 33444. This episode of AOC was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com. 